a Bible and uh, open it up, if you would, please, to Genesis again. And uh, we're going to be wandering around from about chapter 12 onwards, which is page 13 in the Bibles, the church Bibles, from Genesis 12 um, onwards. One of uh, the things that I don't get to do very often as a vicar, but some vicars seem to spend almost every weekend of their lives doing, uh, is taking weddings. And uh, there is that moment in a wedding where uh, the bride and the groom make their vows, their promises, their covenant with one another. Uh, They're solemn promises, they're very big promises, they're very deep promises, they're all-encompassing promises. And they're promises made in public, in the midst of a ceremony, they're a very sort of formal setting. And on one level, it feels, when you stand back from the sort of everydayness of it, and we sort of know that's what weddings look like, on one level, it seems a strange way to celebrate something that, at its best, is wonderfully spontaneous and informal and um, unstructured. We take something, this gift of love that has arisen between two people that is intimate and private and, as I say, spontaneous and full of life, and we put it in this formal, structured, written-down public service. Why do we do it? It seems an odd thing to do with a relationship, to formalise it, to write it down. So, of course, what some people over the years have reacted against. Why should you put this structure on me? Why put this heavy load of vows and covenant uh, on me? Well, of course, actually, at its heart, it's that every relationship, not just a marriage relationship, relies on promise. Because people are fundamentally unpredictable and somewhat unreliable. Um, uh, you'll know probably um, from some of the readings that we have leading up to Christmas that one of the ways in which the Bible likes to describe people in terms of its poetry about us is that we are like sheep. Uh, The prophet Isaiah um, in Isaiah 53 says, we are like sheep that have gone astray. And immediately in that in that phraseology, on that sort of poetry, you have that sense of sheep aren't necessarily going to do what you want them to do when you want them to do it. There is apparently, I have not myself read it, but I'm told on good authority, there is apparently a PhD thesis uh, that was published, let me get the name of it right, um, it was entitled the, the Normal Walk of Animals. Now apparently in scientific terms, the normal walk uh, means a bit more than this is what they normally do. There is a, a way that scientifically I'm sure you're all wishing that you'd done this PhD. There is a way in which you can trace how animal, different animals walk and wander. And what they did was, apparently, I'd have loved to have seen this in a lab, they set up a lab with an, a sort of obstacle course, by which I mean just different things that they had to walk around. And they'd set an animal here at one end and just watch how they walked. And they plotted on a computer and then they'd set that same animal again and again and again. And then they'd try another animal of the same species. So they'd, you know, they'd have one calf and then they'd put another calf in there and they'd plot these out. And eventually, for almost all animals, they were able to find what was described as the normal walk, the the sort of average way, route, that they took through. Apparently, the one animal that they tried whose walk was impossible to reproduce was sheep. 
Sheep are apparently, to use the words of one author, not only perverse, but individualistically perverse. They not only do their own thing, they do their own thing in their own way. No two sheep go about the oddness of being a sheep in quite the same way as another sheep. Now, you'd have to ask a shepherd if that's right outside of the lab. But it sort of gives the feel for what the poet that was Isaiah the prophet was trying to say, that human beings are fundamentally, um, in this particular formal sense, odd. That is, we do our own thing in our own sweet way. And we need promise Because if you think about it, in the gaps between connection with somebody else, what do you rely on? If you're a parent with your child, if you're a husband with your wife, if you're a friend with another friend, how do you relate to them when they're not directly with you, when they're not expressing love towards you, when they're not telling you how they're relating to you? So it's one thing walking along a moonlit beach, holding hands with your uh, your other half and whispering sweet nothings to one another. Two days later, when you're 200 miles apart on a business trip, on what basis is your relationship happening? Well, it's happening on the basis of promise. I don't know exactly what you're doing at this moment. I don't know exactly how you will deal with today. I don't know exactly what you're thinking about at this moment, but you have promised to behave in this way towards me, to think this way towards me, to feel this way towards me. Now, that's really obvious if you like in a, in a, a, a love, long-term marriage-type relationship. But it's actually true of all relationships, all friendships, from the most informal to the most formal. We need promise Because in the gaps between contact, in the gaps in between where we are, if you like, telling one another our relationship, we have to trust one another. And without trust, no relationship will work. Actually, not even business relationships work between companies without trust, but certainly informal, personal relationships need promises because we are individualistically perverse, we are unpredictable, we actually need to make those promises to one another. What has that got to do with Genesis 12? What has that got to do with covenant? Well, here's the amazing thing. The Christian faith is the only faith that speaks of a God who doesn't just expect us to make promises to him, but whose entire nature is summed up towards us by him making a promise to us. Not in his case because he is individualistically perverse, but because he is unpredictable in his awesome, infinite self. Several of the writers in the Bible speak about how you cannot know the mind of God. You cannot predict what he's going to do. You cannot understand everything he does do. There are going to be plenty of points in life where God leaves us going, huh? really? I don't understand. Or simply yelling at him saying, why did you do that? Why did you let that happen? I've often said that actually the Bible is a very noisy book and an awful lot of the noise in the book, yes, is to do with praise and worship. There's a whole other set of noise in the Bible and it's the noise of people yelling at God because he hasn't done what they wanted him to, hoped he would do, predicted he would do. Surely God, you should have known that surely God you could have 
surely God, if this is true about you, you would have done? Do you know the amazing thing about God is that rather than simply saying to us, well, tough, you believe me or you don't believe me, God makes a promise. And he doesn't just make a promise, he makes a formal promise in a ritual public setting that is laid out like a covenant. He actually, if you like, stoops down to our level and says, I know you don't understand me fully. I know you can't always understand what I'm doing. I know there are plenty of times in between those moments where you feel eyeball to eyeball with me, where you just have to live life in the promise. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lay down a formal covenant with you. I'm going to say to you, here's how it is. I love you with an everlasting love, with an unbreakable, unshakable, unending, unfathomable love. And here it is. It's sealed and signed. It's yours. Now, That's really what we could say every single week of this sermon series on covenant. Because wherever you slice the Bible from the first pages of Genesis to the last pages of Revelation, it's all about God reminding us of his covenant love. Of him saying to us, look, I know you don't understand. I know that you get lost. I know that in between those times where you feel so close to me that you could reach out and touch me, 99.999% of life has to be lived in the gaps. In between those moments of connection with God. And in the gaps, you have to live life by the promise. I promise, I covenant with you. And in this story of Abraham, which I've now used up half my time to tell you all of that, but let me illustrate it. Um, In Genesis 12 through to 20, 21, 22, you have this incredible and not just wonderful, but formative story of one particular couple. In the very earliest prehistory of God's people, Abraham and Sarah become not just an example of how God relates to us and makes promises, but in the Bible, pretty much the primary example. In fact, when Paul is writing about Jesus and explaining to us how in the blood of Jesus God has written his covenant with us, he actually says, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. How does this fit in with Abraham and Sarah? It's Romans chapter 4, the beginning of that. He actually goes, look, I know this has to accord with what God did with Abraham and Sarah because God won't have changed his mind. That's the whole point about God. God is always God, yesterday, today, forever. So the way God related to Abraham and Sarah, says Paul in Romans 4, must be the same way he's related to us in and through Jesus. In other words, this is really worth taking seriously. This may be three and a half thousand years ago, This may be in a lifestyle and a part of the world we don't know and will never experience, but this God is still the same God and people are still people and this is still the way God promises and makes covenant and relates to you and relates to me. Now, genuinely, I know I say this almost every time I preach, but genuinely, Genesis 12 to 20, 21, 22, Abraham and Sarah is worth an entire sermon series of its own and then some. There is so much to learn from them. But what I want to do is simply... Um, sort of note for you seven moments when God speaks to Abraham and Sarah in promise and point out that those seven moments although they're the bits we notice were over the space of 25 years Now, if you added up the number of minutes those seven moments took and then worked out how many gaps they had to live 
how many years they had to live in between those promises, you realize that Abraham and Sarah are a really good example for you and me of how as we live in the gaps between feeling God's presence, in the gaps in between moments of worship and of prayer, of when our hearts feel warmed by God, as we live in the gaps between experiencing God one-to-one, as it were, these are a good example of how you rely on the promise and of how hard it is sometimes. It all starts in Genesis chapter 12, page 13. The Lord said to Abraham, leave your country, your people and your father's household and go. That's worth noting. God is God. And so if God tells you to do something, he pretty much doesn't have to justify it, you'd have thought. If you're in the army and you're told to do something, you don't say, not if you want to survive very long, why? Or what if? Or are you sure? Or do you promise? You simply go, yes, sir. Now, if God is God, surely God shouldn't have to make any promises. God shouldn't have to reassure Abraham and Sarah. God shouldn't have to say anything apart from go, leave, find. But he does because he loves them. Because he loves you. He loves me. He knows how much we struggle. Abraham was having to give up everything he knew, everything he'd worked for, everything he loved. His entire life was wrapped up in the inheritance he would receive from his father, the land that his father and his ancestors had lived in. God said, give it up, go. But he didn't just say, give it up and go. He then made a promise because God knows we need the promise. He knows we need to hold on to his promises in the gaps. And the promise is the foundational promise of the whole of scripture. This is what he says, I will show you that land. Verse two, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is to do with how God is going to unpick the mess that human beings have made by turning their back on him. This is what it's about. It's as fundamental as that. You go back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3, to the picture language that's there, to the picture language that um, Callum was speaking about last week in the, uh, the life of Noah, and what you see is a people who regularly, routinely, and in their individualistically perverse way, turn their backs on God. And God says, right, here's my plan. I'm going to choose a people, not because they're special and that I love them more than anybody else, but simply because I want them to be my visual aid to the whole world that I love everybody that in seeing how much I love them, everybody will know how much they're loved, that in seeing how much I forgive them, everybody will find forgiveness, that in seeing how much I bless them, everybody will find blessing. I will bless those who bless you. That's the promise. And he says it to Abraham. And Abraham is now meant to do what he's told. God says to Abraham, go, leave, find. Go away from Uh, leaving behind where you've grown up, find this land that I'm going to take you to, but here's my promise. If you do that, you and your ancestors are going to be this people through whom the whole world will know how much I love them. And I will be with you and I will be with your people forever. Here's a promise. Promise for Abraham to hold on to. Verse four, so Abraham left as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abraham was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they'd accumulated and the people they'd acquired in Haran and they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. Abraham travelled through that land 
as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh in Shechem, and at that time the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring I will give this land. And so he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now, here's the first bump in the road, okay? God has said to Abraham, if you go and leave, you will find a land. He finds the land. Problem is, the land's already occupied. How can this be the land of my descendants, the land for my people? The Canaanites are here. They don't love God. They don't worship him. They're not going, yeah, come in, you can have our land. They're going, this is our land. See, God knows there are bumps in the road. God knows that your faith will go down as well as up. It sounds like one of those investment warnings, small print. Please note, faith can go down as well as up. Past performance is now guarantee of future performance. It, it, that's how faith goes. There are times in life where faith feels like it is hanging by the slenderest of threads, where we are holding on by our fingernails and scraping our way down. Because in the gaps in between hearing God, there are all sorts of bumps in the road. We have grief and sadness. We have upset and disappointment. We mess up ourselves and let ourselves and our families down. And our faith takes big nosedives. Guarantee when Abraham arrived in um, this land God had taken him to, to the land of Canaan, and found it populated by the Canaanites, he thought, I thought I'd heard God. I thought this is where he brought me. Maybe God isn't God. Maybe God doesn't know what he's doing. I don't understand. Why hasn't God cleared out the land already? Surely that's what you do. Yet again, God doesn't do what we think he's going to do. God isn't predictable. God's ways are not our ways. So what does God do? God doesn't simply say, tough, I told you to do something. I've given you a promise. Get on with it. He loves us much too much for that. He gives Abraham another promise. Verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, to your offspring I will give this land. Now listen, God doesn't mind repeating himself. That's really good, isn't it? He says it again. He's already told him that bit, but he tells him it again. I will give your offspring this land. And Abraham's response is really important. This is something you and I have to learn from. He worships. He builds uh, an altar, a place of worship. When you do remember the promises of God, turn it into worship. This Sunday by Sunday worshipping of God is one of the most important ways in which you will be able to live life by the promise, to live in the gaps. We need that gift of worship. Not just song worship, but worship in prayer, worship in those daily moments where we just open up our hearts up to God, we sort of glance upwards, we give him the honour that he's due. Worship is one way that we keep life heading in the right direction, in the gaps between hearing God we worship. You'll find there are several places in these chapters in Genesis where Abraham stops, builds an altar, looks up and remembers God's promise. I wonder if you've done that today. I wonder when will the next time you do that? Will it simply be when you're not too busy? The next Sunday that's free? The next Monday that you've got a bit of time? Abraham finds those moments and worships. And then he right royally messes up. Don't let anybody ever gloss over the bits of these chapters where Abraham is a really cowardly individual. You see, God may have promised him twice and he may have done some worshipping, but he then heads into another gap. He's heard God and he's heard God, but now he's not hearing God and he gets scared. Fear is almost 
without doubt, the greatest enemy of faith. We fear being let down. We fear the future. We fear missing out. We fear letting others down. And in this case, Abraham fears for his life. They go to Egypt, and as they go into Egypt, he looks at his wife and knows that she is beautiful and fears that in that climate, in that culture, at that time, if he goes into Egypt with her as his wife, they will kill him in order to take her. And so he does something that in our culture is, seems utterly ridiculous, utterly bonkers, actually. And, and uh, why Sarah would agree to it, we can't get our heads around. It, it seems just a dreadful, awful thing to do. And by the way, I'm not about to say to you, but it wasn't. Actually, it really was a dreadful, awful thing to do. Listen to what he says. Uh, verse 11. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarah, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake and my life will be spared because of you. So she says, all right then. He doesn't think about the fact, or he forgets, or can't quite rely on the fact that God has made two promises to him that he is going to be the father of an entire nation. Now, on the basis that they haven't got any children yet, You'd sort of, logic would say, if God's made that promise, he's pretty much got to keep me and my wife alive. The the logic is there, but he can't go with it because he's scared. Fear eats away at the foundations of our faith. So what he does is, they do this pretense, the Egyptians come along, the Pharaoh gets to hear of this beautiful, exotic, foreign woman. Thankfully, she's not married. So she's taken off to the Pharaoh's, um, uh, you know, a palace and is married into the harem and then it all breaks loose because God brings plague on that household because Pharaoh has done what is not right. It's all Abraham's fault of course because Abraham has forgotten the promises of God. Now look, promise, if I keep going into all of these bits of the story, we're going to be here all day and there is so much in the story but the same pattern happens over and over again, okay? God makes a promise There's a bump in the road. There's something to fear. He fears the Canaanites. He fears losing his life. Later on, uh, he does this again, by the way. He does this to Sarah again as they go into another um, country a few chapters later on. There are all sorts of points along the way where there is a bump in the road. He fears something. His faith takes a nosedive. And do you know the amazing thing about God? God makes another promise. God rescues them and he promises again. He's so faithful. He's so, uh, if you might say, long-suffering. And right here um, in uh, chapter 15, once we've gone through chapters 13 and 14, there's more bumps in the road, there's more promises from God, and then we get to chapter 15, and this is the point at which God makes not just a promise, but a covenant. And by that I mean he makes that promise, like I started off this whole sermon talking about, in, in a public, formal, ritualized setting, as if to say to Abraham, look, I know you keep forgetting my promises. I know you keep having these bumps in the road. I know your faith keeps taking those down. I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll write it down for you. I'll seal it in the sort of covenant ritual that all the people around here will recognize. This was the way that the cultures around Abraham made a covenant between two people. 
They, they would take some animals, they would sacrifice them, they would slice them in two. It sounds incredibly bloodthirsty in our, to our ears. It's just what was done. And then one party in the covenant would walk down the middle between those two, the carcasses, because it was a visual aid for saying, may I be split in two if I break my covenant. How demeaning to make God do that. Have you ever thought of it? Why should God have to make promises like that? Of course God isn't going to break his promise. Of course God is going to be God yesterday, today and forever. Why on earth should God, who is God of the whole universe, who is utterly faithful, who never breaks his promises, who always loves us with an unfailing, unshakable, unfathomable love, have to make a promise like that to Abraham? Because he chooses to. Because that's the sort of God that he is. And so you find in Genesis uh, chapter 15, um, a little bit on into that. Uh, well, chapter 15, verse 1 just reminds us, do not be afraid, Abraham. You see, God knows what Abraham's problem is. Do not be afraid. And then a little bit further down, verse 10, Abraham brought um, all these were different animals to him, cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. Um, verse 12, as the sun was setting, Abraham fell into a deep sleep and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own. They will be enslaved and ill-treated for 400 years, but I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its measure. Verse 17, and this is the covenant moment. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking brazier with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, to your descendants, I give this land. It's a truly remarkable moment. God who is God making a covenant with a human being. God who is utterly free, who is the definition of freedom, whom nobody can question because he is God, choosing to subject himself to the conditions of a covenant. God says, may I be split in two if I break my covenant with you. Why on earth should God have to say that? Because he knows we need it. Because he knows that we struggle when we don't understand him. Because he knows that our, our minds are turned inside out trying to understand why he does what he does and why he doesn't do what he doesn't do and why, why things don't work out the way we want life to work out. And he says to us, okay, in those moments where your faith hits a bump in the road, where your faith takes a nosedive, where you're clinging on by your fingertips, here is a covenant for you. Abraham gradually gets the hang of it over the next few chapters. God has to make several more promises to him, several more reminders. And in the end, he gets it. In the end, Abraham lives out what the Bible there and elsewhere says is the essence of faith. Do you remember two weeks ago I said, what is faith? It's trust. Abraham has to learn to trust the promises of God. And that's what God credits to him as righteousness, says the writer of Genesis and says Paul. For you and for me? Well, the reason that Paul references this in Romans chapter 4 is because the new covenant God has made wasn't made with the blood of animals laid out on the ground and a smoking brazier between them, but was made out in the blood of Jesus. 
that when you can't quite believe that God is who he claims to be, when you're not quite sure if God's promises are as sure as you'd like them to be, when God is not predictable, doesn't do what you want, doesn't show up in the way that we long for him to show up, when life is rocky and when we're scared most of all, we look at the cross. Because on the cross, God made a covenant with us in the blood of Jesus. And that covenant says, you are loved with an everlasting love. You are forgiven because of Jesus' death on the cross. You are given new life because of Jesus' new life. Not because of your love for him, but because of his love for you. You have nothing to fear. Because God has signed a covenant in his blood. We have to live most of life in the gaps. Most of life is not a moment by moment engagement with God, eyeball to eyeball, every second of every day, and knowing God is with us all the time. Most of life is lived in the gaps between those moments. And in the gaps, we trust the covenant. God demeaning himself, in a way, signing a covenant in his blood simply so you and I could know that come what may, God is God is God. Come what may, he loves us. Come what may, he is reliable. Even, maybe especially, when we cannot fathom what he's up to. We're going to come to communion now. And as we come to communion, we're coming to the covenant meal. The covenant meal is again a reminder of Jesus' love for us, of his blood shed for us, of that covenant made with us, of God's guaranteed love for us. And what he simply asked Abraham to do was to believe him and was to live out of that promise. And what he asks of you and of me as we come forward to receive is to believe him and is to live life out of that promise of love. Let's pause for a moment as I prepare um, for communion let's bring before him our fears the bumps in the road the times when we find it hardest to trust him let's look to the cross the place on which by which God signed a covenant in his blood And let's ask God to help us, like Abraham, to trust in his promises. Not because of our love for him, not because we're good and lovely people who never let him down, but because of his love for us.